My guest on this episode of the Leanne Wood podcast describes herself as a quiet activist, although in my mind, she's anything but quiet. Norina Shopland is a researcher and a historian who tells the story of LGBTQ plus people. She has curated museum exhibitions, written books, including history guides, and she's created training programs and research toolkits, which are used in her workshops, which help people to research their own history. She's currently working on reviving LGBTQ plus history month with the National Library of Wales, who she's working with to catalogue all Wales related material. Following the mantra, if you can't see us, we aren't there, Norina has produced an impressive body of work which shows that LGBTQ plus people have always been there. Her work also shows that by increasing visibility, we can decrease discrimination. I thought it would be interesting to hear about some of the stories and lives that have changed and helped to shape Wales for the good, and which have helped to expand understanding and promote better equality. Diolch Norina, thank you for joining me. I wonder if you could start by telling us how and why you first got into the research work that you do. Diolch Leanne, and uh, thanks for inviting me. Yes, I've always had a love for history and I trained as an archaeologist, but like most archaeologists, you end up going indoors and leaving field work because of the cold and the rain and the heat. And I went to work for an organisation called LAGNA, and it was the Lesbian and Gay News Media Archive. And they were looking for a catalogue. And what the archive consisted of was gay news had for many decades employed a press cutting agency. And so there was all these uh, press stories of sexual orientation and gender identity that needed sorting out and cataloguing and everything. So I went to work there. And it gave me a love for newspaper stories. The way that people write about sexual orientation and gender identity uh, in the past is absolutely fascinating, particularly when you normally, through your route of interest in history, you read books and you read you know, articles and things. So reading original stories is, is quite eye-opening. And so I got really fascinated in newspaper stories. And so when I returned back to my native Wales in uh, 2007, I kept up that interest and I started looking uh, at Welsh newspapers online and other newspaper databases, trying to uncover more stories. And I, I started to develop this new way of looking because the problem with research is when you start research, you, the first thing you do is go away and get a glossary. But the problem with glossaries is you run out of words because they stop. They don't have dates usually, they don't have caveats of use. And so they were limited use for me in use in newspaper stories. So reading through these fascinating stories, I started to compile ways that journalists were talking. If you look at any story today, if you look at the same story, 10 different journalists will tell it in 10 different ways. So by adding all these voices together and sticking them together into a sort of research idea, it expanded it enormously. And as a result, I ended up with about 4,000 articles, most of which were unpublished, because I was particularly interested in trying to locate stories from the past about women, because, of course, most of history is dominated by male history. So I wanted to look more at those individuals we were today referred to as lesbian or trans, because those histories need more information. 
And I co-authored a research guide called Queering Glamorgan, which is published by Glamorgan Archives. It's a free download, so anyone can go and, and download it. And basically, it, it started to explain this idea of taking newspaper stories, putting the voice of the writer in front, um, instead of trying to put everything in a glossary, restrict everything to a, a list of words. And Queer and Glamorgan has been downloaded over 2,000 times now. So, I mean, people are finding it very useful. And then I did a book called A Practical Guide to Searching LGBTQIA Historical Records, which is basically a toolkit. And what I was finding is that not only is this a toolkit for LGBT history, but also all the other diversities as well. So, so that's how I started, really, looking at newspaper stories and then invented this entire methodology for research. You mentioned that you moved back to Wales from London in 2007, only to discover that there was very little in the way of documented Welsh history. So what did you do about that? That was an interesting period. I, I had been working for the Museum of London in 2000 when we put on an exhibition because they had realised that a lot of museums don't have a lot of diversity in their permanent collections, particularly LGBT, and partially because of Section 28, that iniquitous little law that was brought in by the Conservative government under Margaret Thatcher, which banned any promotion of homosexuality or the concept of pretended families. And so I did this exhibition with the Museum of London in the year 2000. And we, we basically sort of invited the local council to come and prosecute us, but they wouldn't. And there wasn't a single prosecution under Section 28, um, and primarily because of that wording. The, the, the government had used such emotive terms like promote and pretended families that it basically shot them in the, their own foot because people realised that if you did bring a prosecution forward, the only thing that would happen is that lawyers would get rich debating in court what promote meant and what pretended family meant, because these weren't legal terms. So, um, so I had done all that work. And, and when I moved back to, to Wales in, in 2007, I was really looking around to sort of continue that kind of work. Of course, Section 28 had been repealed in 2003, but a lot of people hadn't taken that on board. So there was still a lot of slowness, particularly in the heritage sector, of representation. And so I really wanted to sort of push this into some sort of start. There wasn't very much around. There was a, a support group in St Fagans, a, st a staff network. But other than that, and, and the few efforts that were being made was predominantly about the famous individuals like Oscar Wilde. I was looking around for a charity to work with because I had, when I first moved to Wales, I was still working in London for a charity called Positively Women. I was commuting back and forward and hating it. And it was a, an oral history project on women with HIV and AIDS. And I had got the funding from what was then the Heritage Lottery Fund. It's now the National Heritage Lottery Fund. And so when I got back to Wales, I thought, well, there's nothing here. So what I'll do is I'll try another Heritage Lottery Fund grant. And I approached a charity who had already got a small grant to run the first trans project in Wales, Gender Fluidity, which was a series of leaflets written by trans people, for trans people and for service providers. And so I managed that in the same time as writing the proposal to do the first Welsh project. And we were awarded £49,000 for a year long project. And we, we spent the year basically collecting anything and everything that we could find, anything to do with Welsh LGBTQ plus history. And we had an exhibition at the Pierhead um, in uh, 2012. 
and we had launch at the Senate and, and just about everybody came. I think you came as well, didn't you, Leah? And um, so it really was quite quite a thing because it was the first. John Davis, the historian, spoke for the first time about being gay. And I, I had looked around. I wanted something special. So I'd looked around at what poet laureates and national poets in countries around the world had done for the LGBTQ plus people of, of their country, because national poets are supposed to commemorate, you know, important events. And nobody had ever written about LGBT people. So I, I sent an email to Gillian Clark, who was then the National Poet of Wales. And I said, I don't suppose you would, would you? And she said, of course I will. And she was absolutely wonderful. And she did a poem about the Lady of Sutherland Gotland. And not only did she write the poem, she turned up at the launch and read it in person, which was wonderful. And it's a lovely poem. And so after that, when people started to realise, you know, we should be doing Welsh people. We shouldn't just be doing all the famous Oscar Wilde's and everybody else. So after that, things have progressed enormously, I'm, I'm delighted to say. That's a brilliant story there. You went on to write a book and the ladies of Llangollen feature uh, in the book, Forbidden Lives, LGBT Stories from Wales. Can you provide us with some examples of the role of Welsh people in changing the legislation in relation to gay rights and any other changes, major changes that have been made as a result of the intervention of, of Welsh people? That, that was the thing that really surprised me writing the book. And the reason I wrote the book was because I was sick to death of reading books about, you know, LGBTQ plus history. And they would talk about England, they would talk about Scotland, they would talk about Ireland. Nobody ever mentioned Wales. You know, you, you could go into the, the index. There was never, you know, they would talk about Ivan Novello, never mentioned he was Welsh. But if it was somebody was Scottish, they'd go, oh, Scottish person, you know. And I, so I was getting really fed up of this. So I thought, well, the only way that I'm going to do to beat this is, is to produce a book. So I started writing Forbidden Lives. Uh, and yes, there is a chapter on ladies in Flangoflin in there. And one of the things that really surprised me, and I think surprised a lot of other people as well, was the enormous contribution that uh, people from Wales have made to changes in legislation, which have affected not just this country, but of course then has an impact on Commonwealth countries and international countries around the world. And one of the things that struck me quite early on is that whole situation around decriminalisation of male homosexuality, because, of course, it was never illegal for women, homosexuality in women. And there, there was a series of court cases after Oscar Wilde. Um, you know, there's a number of court cases during the early 20th century. And people were becoming rather alarmed that the police were spending an awful lot of time going looking for men in toilets and, you know, in the meantime, there were murders and robberies and all sorts of things. And, and people were saying, why are we doing this? So there were moves to try and decriminalise male homosexuality. And when you look at the people who started off rolling, you, you've got people like Desmond Donnelly, who was the MP for Pembrokeshire at the time, um, who joins his voice. And he's writing to Parliament saying, yes, we really must do something about this. And um, eventually the government decided that, yes, OK, fine, we'll, we'll tag it on this report we're doing on prostitution. And the reason they tagged it on the, the prostitution report, because they wanted people off the streets, because they just saw male homosexuality as cruising and, you know, toilets and streets and everything. So we'll stick it on the end of prostitution. And so they started the, this inquiry, which was run by uh, John Wolfenden, 
who it turns out had a gay son as well. So um, that was interesting. And they had a committee, which there was only one Welsh person on it, who was Goromwe Rees, who was a journalist, a writer and dean of Aberystwyth University. And Goromwe Rees is described as the most liberal thinker on the Wolfenden Committee. Now, the problem was Wolfenden didn't want to speak to homosexual men because, after all, they were criminals. You know, this is a decade after Alan Turing, who did nothing more than tell the police he was a homosexual. And so he was prosecuted and he was given the choice to go to jail or take chemical castration, uh, a drug. And he took the drug, which had enormous uh, uh, side effects in depression. And of course, he took his own life. And so Wolfenden said, we can't, we can't interview homosexual men. They're criminals. We can't be seen to be talking to criminals or risk having them arrested in, in the office. And it's Goranwe Reese who says, don't be daft, of course you've got to talk to these people. And part of the training that I do, um, and it's become a catchword for anybody who does anything, either politically or historically, is nothing about us without us. You can't put exhibitions on, you can't talk about... Um, LGBT people, um, unless they're there. And here's Goromwe Reese in 1956, doing that way before anybody else is doing this. He's saying nothing about them without them. And so he, he persuades the uh, committee to talk to a number of men. I um, must admit they were, they were middle-class, upper-class men. And the, the attitude begins to shift. And they, they produce this report, which has certain recommendations for prostitution, all of which are immediately enacted, and recommendations for, for changes in homosexual, uh, the law related to homosexual, which nothing is done. In the meantime, Garamwe Reese has written some rather awful letters in a Sunday newspaper about Guy Burgess, whom he was friends with, and he got sacked off the Wolfenden Committee. He also got sacked as the Dean of Aberystwyth University. So they, they produce this report, nothing gets done. And it's, all, it's immediately apparent that the government are not going to, to any of the recommendations. And there's an English lecturer in Bangor University called Tony Dyson, who decides to do something about this. And he is, writes a letter to the Times and he gets a lot of famous people at the time to, to sign this letter. And he does it on Bangor University headed letters paper which was incredibly dangerous. We know what had happened to Alan Turing. And there's this man sitting in Bangor University, trying to persuade leading people around the UK to sign his letter. He's got a relationship with a Welshman who's a teacher. And they basically could have been arrested and thrown into jail. So it was incredibly brave for both of these men to do this. And it's from this that you see the activist groups starting to form the Homosexual Reform Society and later on the Campaign for Homosexual Society. And he really does try and campaign to get something done. Nothing happens for 10 years, unfortunately. And then you have Leo Absey, who's the MP for Pontypool. And he starts pushing it forward, saying, yes, we've got to enact this. And he's assisted by Roy Jenkins, who's then the Home Secretary, who we now know was sexually fluid. He had relationships with both men and women. So again, you have these Welsh people pushing this forward. And eventually it does become a partial decriminalisation in 1967, but it's so partial, it's it almost not worth it. So you have a lot of Welsh people really front and, and centre pushing this legislation through. And we have now to, to thank them for, for, it was the first step. It may not have been a, a massive decriminalisation, but it was the first step forward. 
And people have said to me, why do you think Welsh people were so influential? And I think because of the liberal attitudes, there was, you know, if you look at the nonconformist history in, in Wales, I think there was a much more liberal attitude to Wales. And I think you see a lot more Welsh people. And then you have somebody like Reform Williams in, in later years, in the 2000s, who was really concerned about the lack of police attention to murders and attacks on LGBTQ plus people. And he almost single-handedly does this murder review and he shows how bad the police have been treating. And we've seen a lot of documentaries recently about this. And he makes 22 recommendations to the Metropolitan Police, which are all put into place. And all other police forces around the UK then follow. And they, you know, put those into place. And I can sit here for an hour and tell you the impact that Welsh people have had on legislation, politics and everything. But I'm aware we don't have that time. <laughs> Read the book. <laughs> I can sit here and listen to you talk about it as well. Can you tell us why an understanding of where we come from is so important to our current identity? It is. LGBTQ plus people have been around since the year dot, and we will be here until the year dot. Nobody's going away. We're here. You have to just accept that. And and one of the things that I do in in the training that I do is, is look at the diversity sort of figures so we talk about, you know, there's this percentage of LGBTQ plus people, there's this percentage of race, there's this percentage of disability and everything. And they're all split up. They're all regarded in isolation because, of course, there's an impact on funding and service providers. But when you put them all together, everybody has some sort of diversity so that you end up with 100 percent of society. So, you know, you may you may say, well, this this group is only 10 percent. This group is only 6 percent. But everybody has a diversity. And I think we need to understand that. We need to take that on board. And that has been in existence throughout the whole of time. That hasn't changed and it's never going to change. Human nature doesn't change. We're all fundamentally the same now as we were in the uh, you know 1066. With, you know, people still love, they still hate, they still fight, they still you know um, do everything, get married, have kids, all sorts of things. So we don't change. And I think we need to understand that so that our identity is seen as a patchwork of diversities rather than this heteronormative idea about binary genders and binary sexualities. And as I said, everybody has a diversity. And once we understand that, we're a lot more to becoming a more, I hate the word tolerant. Tolerant is a word that's used a lot. People say, you know, are they tolerant? And nobody wants to be tolerated. You know, I want understanding. I want awareness. And once we can get this understanding and awareness, and this is what I do a lot in the training in LGBTQ plus history, is, is raise awareness, raise understanding. But then that has to be backed up with visibility. One of the nice things in today's society is the TV adverts have now started to take this on board. You see TV adverts now and there's same sex couples, there's lots of race, there's disability. And I'm like, yay, this is how it should be across the board. You know, we, we still have the situation where most museums in the UK do not represent diversity. A lot of the exhibitions that are done for History Month and Pride Month and everything, they're these pop-up exhibitions. But when those pop-up exhibitions come down, where are we? Visibility is the key. What lessons from the past do you think we can learn for Wales today? Oh, <laughs> lots of lessons from the past. 
As I say, one of the things that I do a lot of, and, and last year I was commissioned by the Welsh Government to do training on LGBTQ language and history. And looking at the stories from history, we can, even those little tiny stories that I collected for the book, A History of Women in Men's Clothes, they're these tiny stories, which I call matchstick stories. They flare up and disappear. And most researchers don't don't bother to keep them. But I did. And you you can then have a a complete narrative of the overarching story of how people are looking at any particular group. And one of the things that's really interesting is that once you start adding all these stories together, you often find a new narrative. Certainly with the History of Women in Men's Clothes book, you know, we, we, we have this idea that women are stuck in, in doors for most of history and that they didn't have the freedom to do what they want. Uh, a lot of that's rubbish. They just stuck on men's clothes and went off, regardless of whether it was visiting your auntie down the street or living your entire life as a man. And we have a lot of these stories that a lot of researchers ignore because they're so small, but I've put them together to make a complete narrative. And one of the other things about visibility is that we need to take things off the queer shelf. You know, we have a lot of uh, histories, such as female sailors, for example. There's a lot of women who lived entire lives as female sailors, and there's a lot of books about them, but they tend to go on the queer shelf. They're not in the, you know, naval history shelf. They're not in women's history shelf. And we need to see more of that because those stories from the past, if we put them in mainstream history, we put them in naval history, we put them in women's history, we see that there is visibility there, we see the diversities there. And that's what we can learn from the past, that these people have always been there, there's always been diversity, there's never been sort of binary genders and binary sexualities, and, you know, the same with disability and race. And So by using these stories from the past, we can build this picture of a society that that is diverse. Yes, I agree with what you said there. If you're feeling isolated as an LGBTQ plus person in Wales who would like to work with other people on the projects like the ones that you've talked to me about, what can you do? How can you get involved? Oh, there's lots of things you can do. I, I mean, download Queering Glamorgan. It's As I said, it's a free download. And one of the things that I do is I, I'm one of these people who I can't sit and watch TV at night. I have to be doing something as well, either playing a game or... And I spend a lot of time roaming around on newspaper archive sites, chucking in search terms to see if anything comes up. And so anybody can do that. I mean, as I said, download Queering Glamorgan or get the book, A Practical Guide to Searching LGBTQIA Historical Records and have a go, basically have a go. Uh, In all the work that I did, um, I collected 4,000 stories. I I had to stop because I had to to go away and do other things, you know, Um, and I only do it in the English language. So there's just so much to be done, so much to be done. And I'm I'm a co-founder, along with Mark Etheridge and Susan Edwards, of the LGBTQ plus research group of Wales. And it's a Twitter group. so, So do follow us on Twitter. And we have meetings and we invite people to come along and talk about their projects. And if people want to volunteer, they can, they can get involved in those those sort of projects or come and talk about the project yourself. We also have a new site which is about to go live. It's not quite ready yet, called LGBTQ Cymru, which is funded by the Swansea University. 
And it's basically going to be a platform for the people of Wales to talk about anything LGBTQ+. Within reason, obviously, nasty posts will not be accepted. And a lot of history will go out there, a lot of links, a lot of resources, all sorts of things. So there will be lots of opportunities to either write a blog or send something in that you found or anything. There's also People's Collection Wales, which is uh, an online site. Again, you can upload anything you want there. You can set up your own page. You can put up um, histories or stories. And we are in need of a lot of stories from the past still because of Section 28, where a lot of uh, local authorities which received government money could not collect. A lot of museums, archives and libraries didn't collect. And I go around and I meet people. And they say, oh, yeah, I had an activist group in the 80s, 90s. We had minutes and meetings and photos and everything. And I get quite excited now. I'm like, oh, good. Can we have them for an archive, please? No, I dragged them around from attic to garage. They got mouldy. Nobody wanted them. I threw them out. So if people still have these things, please talk to a, a local museum. Talk to Mark Etheridge at uh, uh, National Museum Wales or National Library Wales or, or any local archive or museum. If you have anything, even photographs from the 80s and 90s, maybe you went to a Pride, you know, in, in, in 2000 or something, and you've got loads of photographs. You know what photographs are like? They end up sitting under your bed forever and they or they sit on your computer and you never look at them again. If you've got these photos, offer them to a museum or archive or library. I'm sure somebody somewhere would be interested. Norina, I think they've got some of those photographs myself. I'll have to have a look. Finally, do you have a message to those who might feel that their history hasn't yet been told? I think there's a lot of people whose history hasn't yet been told, and not just about LGBTQ+, but race, certain religions, certainly disability. I'm working with somebody in Canada at the moment on expanding diversity within disability, because again, it goes back to, you know, people tend to think in boxes, and, you know, the Encyclopedia of Disability was written and then it was like, oh, maybe we should have put some diversity in it. And, and I, I'm just as guilty because when I started working with this person, I thought, you know, I've never taken out my vast collection of stuff on my laptop, anything to do with disability. Because I, I, too, had lumped it all under women's history, trans history, you know. So I'm now going back through and, and looking at, at my records for examples of disability and if you want your history told, don't sit back and wait for everybody else to do it. Do something yourself as well. You, you said at the beginning that I'm a quiet activist. Yes, because I sit there playing with the, the newspaper archives and by myself all quietly. But then I make it available for everyone else to use to do the same sort of thing. If you want your history told, don't wait for other people to do it for you. Do it yourself. That's good advice that we can apply to almost anything, Norina. Thank you ever so much for joining me on the Leanne Wood podcast. Your contribution has been fascinating. Diolch Thank you, Leanne. I'd like to say Diolch to those who have helped me with this project. Diolch to the team at Audacity, the open source audio editing software used to make this podcast. Diolch to Nick James for the artwork. Diolch to Llewyn Stefan, the creator of the music. And finally, Diolch to all the podcast supporting subscribers. I'm grateful to all of you. I'm looking for support to continue to make these podcasts. You can become a supporting subscriber by checking out my Patreon page. You have been listening to the Leanne Wood Podcast. <laughs>